Let's pray together, beloved. Oh Lord, we come before you and we bless you for the means of grace today. Teach us, Lord, to see in them your loving purpose, your joy and your strength which girds our soul against the tides of the generation in which we live. You've prepared for us a feast and we've partaken of that feast this morning. The bread and the juice symbolizing your body and blood. It doesn't become your body and blood literally, but it's the symbol which points us to Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Lord, we hear your, t- your tender invitation and we see your wondrous grace in our hearts because of this. We cannot hesitate, Lord, to come to you in love and by your spirit, we would ask that you would enliven our faith and rightly give us the ability to discern spiritually and to, as it were, apprehend the Savior this morning afresh. And Lord, the emblems here of your death, the, the juice representing your blood, the, the piece of bread representing your body, we ponder this morning your death and burial and resurrection, the purchase of your church which you bore on Calvary's tree 2,000 years ago. How, Lord, you not only propitiated the Father so that you took the wrath that we deserve in an everlasting hell. You took it upon Calvary's tree, but not only did you propitiate the Father, you expiated our guilt and our sin and the punishment we deserve. Your blood washes us clean. And so, Lord, we, by faith, want to grasp the breadth and the height and the length and the depth and breadth of your love for us. Gird us in our obedience by your grace, strengthen us so that we would be joyful and glad people with reverence and awe for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that you would be to our life, strength, nourishment, joy, and delight. Daily, Lord, may we remember your infinite compassion, your boundless grace, your eternal love, the agony of the cross, but the victory of the open tomb, the resurrection. In you alone is our redemption, the assurance of our pardon of sin, the adoption being purchased out of the marketplace is a redemption for you, and our life and our, our glory rests solely in you. And so, Lord, we would ask this morning as we hunger and thirst, may we only hunger and thirst for righteousness. And may we do so, Lord, we'd ask this morning as David prayed, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. And in doing so, Lord Jesus, may we honor you this morning. I would ask in the preaching of your word that it would be cut straight, rightly divided. And Lord, I thank you for our congregation. Thank you for our church. We would ask for your hand of safety and blessing upon the several that could not be here this morning due to travel or summer vacation or meeting with friends or family, those that are ill and could not be here with us this morning, strengthen their lives, refresh their bodies, bring them back to another week. And Lord, we do pray for our nation, for our president, for the Supreme Court, for members of Congress. Our nation needs revival. We need reformation. We need renewal. We're in a 
slippery slope today. Lord, the low ebb, though, is the turn of the tide. We would ask for our president especially that you'd bring him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That he would truly know that amazing grace is not some political olive branch between races, but it's the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we would ask this morning that you would be glorified. You delight in righteous government and you delight, Lord, in church that wants to honor you and praise you and worship you and proclaim the gospel. So, Lord, more than this morning that we would say, may a May you bless America. May this morning, Lord, bring revival to America so that Americans will truly bless you again in spirit and truth and righteousness and holiness. Oh, Lord, forgive us for the massive blood that cries out for the shedding of innocent life and the tens and millions of unborn children aborted since 1973. Oh, Lord, our nation was founded on biblical principle, but it has become a pagan nation because it has drifted in its identity away from the truth of Jesus Christ. We would ask, Lord, that Christians would be bold again to speak to this culture, to this generation, to this time, the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the liberty and freedom of the gospel. But Lord, we know that grace does not wink at sin we do not go on sinning so that grace may abound. So, Lord, we pray for those that are wanting to make your costly grace a cheap grace this morning. Lord, we know that revival begins first and foremost among your people. And so we would ask that you would revive your people this day. We love you. Thank you that you are sovereign in the midst of a wicked and evil generation. Give us the strength to stand right for you. For it is in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray and all God's people said, amen. This morning I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 as we begin a new chapter here. It simply entitled it, imitators of God, imitators of God. This is taken out of Ephesians 5.1, and we're going to see three key ways that we are to live as imitators of God. We are to live for His glory. We are to honor Him. And I hope this text will bring joy to your heart and glory to the Lord here this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, we're just going to look at the first six verses of this great chapter here this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. We've had quite a week in our nation, haven't we? This has been a frightening week, an unusual time. This has been a time where people have abandoned wholeheartedly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even within some evangelical circles. It's been an unfortunate week to see other evangelical leaders fall to the sin of adultery. And they need prayer and they need repentance. It's been a sad week to see that our Supreme Court no longer honors the constitutionality of the rule of law, but wants to vote simply as a legislative body, which they are not. They are there to examine the, the constitutionality of any law, not to create new law. As one of the justices, Judge Scalia, said this last week, apparently words no longer matter, and we see that in our society. It was very disheartening to millions of believers around the world when on Friday the Supreme Court not only supported gay marriage, but redefined what marriage is at its very roots and now they have signed that into law for all 50 states. There's a problem with this because they did not create what marriage is and therefore they cannot simply rename it. According to Peter in Acts chapter five, we must obey God and not men when these kinds of things occur. And I want you to know this church will continue to preach boldly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and will stand against the sinful tides of this generation. Two men and two women joined in matrimony is not marriage, it is sin. And today they can arrest you for hate speech. Now that this has been now made the law of the land in all 50 states, they're saying churches and pastors in particular are in jeopardy of not only lawsuit, but of losing their tax-exempt status or even being arrested. We're not fearful of that this morning, are we, beloved? Not a bit. We must obey God rather than men. And the issue is, as we want to say to the gay community at large and friends that we have in this community, we want to say to anyone of, of that persuasion that it is wrong. It is sin. It is not how God has fashioned you in his image. But at the same time, we want to say that we do not hate them. That we want to see them come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. And so sometime in the very near future, we haven't done this for a while at our church, but on a Sunday evening, 
I would like to have a special Sunday evening service that we can invite the community to. And I would like to address three things that have been explosive issues from a biblical worldview and then open them up for a time of question and answer. That's on the issue of human life, the sanctity of human life, the issue of abortion. We need to address that publicly as a church. Secondly, the issue of racism. That as you know, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there should never be racism. The color of someone's skin should not ever be a deciding factor of a point of fellowship. We know this because in the book of Revelation, the Lord is reserving for himself a people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And won't that be a great heavenly chorus when people from every nation, every tribe, every ethnic group, those that have responded to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ are gathered one day in glory to sing praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. That'll be a tremendous day. Thirdly, not only abortion and not only racism, but the issue of gay marriage. I'm concerned about this for a number of reasons. The main reason is this. It's one thing for the culture to say we affirm this. It's another for evangelical churches to say if two people are in love, why should we stand in judgment against them? We need clarity on these issues. And the scripture is very precise as to why these things are important. And I want to say to you this morning, just by way of introduction, before we look at our, at our text in verses 1 to 6 of Ephesians 5, would you go down with me a few verses in Ephesians 5 to Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33? If we're going to be bold for the gospel at the Cross Church then we need to boldly proclaim and defend biblical marriage. And there's one reason why. Biblical marriage, one man, one woman, cleaving together under God's blessing, is a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. And this is why when we see the gospel being attacked, but we see marriage being attacked, and biblical marriage. And by the way, not only did they redefine what marriage is this last week, they redefined family, saying that procreation is not necessary. As you know, one of the first commands to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply. When you take away procreation and you take away children, and you take away one man, one woman, what's left is not a family. So I want you to see this here this morning. I just want to read it to you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here we have the relationship of the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, women, that you want to honor and submit to your husbands. Why? Because the church submits to Christ. He's the head. And then he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Here's the definition now taken out of Genesis 2, 24 and 25 in Matthew 19 that the apostle is quoting of biblical marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It is impossible in gay sexual relations for that couple to become one flesh. It is disobedience to a holy God. So the wife submits to the husband because the church submits to Christ. The husband lays down his life for the wife because Jesus Christ laid down his life for the church. Both the husband and the wife have as their object the Lord Jesus Christ. Now why is this so important? Look at here with me. This mystery in verse 32 is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If we're going to preach the gospel, we must defend biblical marriage in our day because it is the only human relationship word picture that demonstrates Christ's love for his church, for his people, which involves his sacrificial death upon the cross and his bodily resurrection from the dead. It's a mystery, Paul says, and it's a favorite saying here in the book of Ephesians, this mystery of both Jew and Gentile being brought under one head, under one body, into one temple, into one household of faith. This mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery is referring to Christ in the church, and from all eternity, God has designed the picture of a man and a woman in, in a family relationship as that which is depicting of his salvific work for his people. That's why this issue means something. The Supreme Court may not realize this, but this is why the Supreme Being in God the Father and in the other two members of the Trinity, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, make this issue so important. Can I tell you, it did my heart good to see people on newscasts, uh, to see that funeral for Pastor Clem this last week at Emmanuel Church, that out of broken hearts of their pastor being murdered and eight others of their congregates being slain a week ago Wednesday, that here they were giving praise and honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel went out. There was no rioting. There was no racist attitudes. Why? Because the gospel was given preference in that local church. And brothers and sisters, that's the cure for racism, isn't it? It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was unfortunate that they had the President of the United States offer the key eulogy at this service because... For one that proclaims to be a Christian, he never one time mentioned the name of Jesus. Never one time did he exalt Christ. Never one time did he give praise to our Lord. 
He made it a political event rather than one that should offer hope beyond the grave for anyone that knows Jesus as Lord and Savior. So I say this with love in my heart. Pray for our president. Pray that he comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior of his life. Pray for Michelle and those precious young girls that they come to repentance by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be great to see that whole family know him as Lord and Savior? It would be tremendous. So I want you to know it was wonderful to see Christians all around this country give praise to the Lord. It was wonderful to see Christians speak out using Facebook and Twitter and different organizations and emails and uh, phone calls and dialogue around community. This is an important time where people need to use these great tools of communication, literally millions of Christians sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was wonderful for myself in dialoguing with people all around the globe, receiving emails, receiving uh, tweets, receiving Facebook messages. Yesterday, I want you to know that we had a, a brother that asked for prayer, and I want to share this with you briefly. His name is Wayne, and he Facebooked me yesterday. It was the only form of communication that he had. And I want to read you part of what he, what he sent to me. He said, Brother Steve, are you there? I need to speak badly. Please. I am a missionary in Taiwan. This has been a horrible, unbelievable accident in our village, an explosion about a mile from my home. My wife and I have spent the last two and a half hours doing triage of hundreds of burn victims, second and third degree burns. I'm not a medical student, but I know how to treat burns. And as I jumped on my scooter and headed directly into the chaos, I'm in shock at this moment I spent the last two and a half hours pushing myself, not thinking, not reacting, just pushing myself to help as many as I could. My wife and I finally left. The ambulances were stretched out on the road for over a mile. People were waiting to get in them. I live in Bali in Taiwan. It will be on the news very sure. I said, brother, I'm so sorry to hear of this. Is your wife okay? He says, my wife is less accustomed to tragedy. She's gone absolutely numb in the face of this horror. She's Taiwanese, and she's my lifeline in speaking the language here to these dear people. I said, what can we do for you? She goes, I recognize the symptoms of shock, and likewise, one lady had burns on her throat, and no one had time to diagnose it until we pushed them to. He says, I keep a lot of liberal atheist Buddhist friends in the hopes of reaching them with the gospel. He said, we need your prayer support. That's the key thing. I literally saw hundreds of people with flesh hanging off their bodies. I can't begin to describe it. I just need prayer support. My town needs prayer support. This is not a Christian nation. This is the sort of tragedy that brings people, though, to question. Our prayer is that they would see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, my brother. 
you can pray for Wayne and his wife. See, this is the beauty of this kind of media. Phone lines were down, but yet he was able to communicate halfway around the world and asking for prayer. May I encourage you to tweet and to Facebook and to let your voice be known for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ this week. This is a time for Christians to be absolutely bold in the face of such sinful waywardness that our nation has given itself to, isn't it? This is a time for us to exalt with love in our hearts but the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem, beloved, is not only has the lackadaisical attitude been demonstrated in government, it's in church. As I went home last Sunday afternoon and then started to receive some phone calls and emails and text messages about a brother just down south who pastors a very large congregation that finally this last week admitted to adultery over several months he was dismissed from his pulpit ministry. The tragic thing was not only his fall, I don't need to mention his name, you can pray even without knowing his name. But the sad thing was that he continued to post messages and so forth and I sent him a public tweet because he posted publicly saying, brother, this is a time to come away, be quiet, repent from your sin, live faithfully to the Lord, place yourself in accountability to the leaders of the church. And I was not prepared for the reaction by literally hundreds of people saying, he doesn't have to repent, it was already settled on the cross. What are you talking about? How dare you judge? How dare you say that this is greater than another sin? You sin too, brother, who are you to judge? I had already posted this last week that at one point, John 3.16 was the most quoted verse in all the Bible. Now it is Matthew 7.1, judge not lest you be judged. They take that out of context. But this has now crept into the church. Adultery is something we don't need to repent of. The reason why our nation has lost its identity and the reason that I believe the book of Judges gives us a one phrase as to where our nation is at, and it's this, every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. And the reason that we see that, it's because a nation, once identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, has completely turned its back on the gospel, our Lord, and his truth. What's shameful is when a White House is decorated with the colors of the gay flag in support of gay marriage openly, defiantly, before a holy God. Judgment, my brothers and sisters, has come to this nation. And it will get worse before it gets better. But we need revival, don't we? We need revival. The issue is not political. The issue is biblical. And what's sad is within the church, not even sin is now considered an important thing. We need to remind ourselves this morning that sin is so powerful that it took Jesus Christ to leave heaven's throne to come to this earth and to lay down his life for us on Calvary's tree to 
defeats sin and the guilt of sin and the wrath of God against all sin. Listen, if you have a low view of God, you will have a low view of sin and a low view of repentance. If you have a high view of God, you will have a reverential, holy view of what it took for him to conquer sin, and you will have a high view of repentance. And so as our nation has turned its back on the Lord, it seems like the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in many circles is now leaving the truth and the standard of God's word. And it ought not to be so. I'm so grateful for our church. I'm so grateful for the leadership of our church that we are dedicated, unified on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, in the providence and sovereignty of God, this text before it, before us this morning, is really powerful verses on how do you turn the tide of this kind of moral malady and absolute blasphemous defiance against the standard of God because that's what all sin is. Sin is irreverential disrespect for the holiness of God. And so I want to encourage your hearts here this morning. Let's turn together. Three things I want to show you in this text this morning. Three great truths. I don't know if we'll get through them all here this morning, but three things. Number one, there's the plea. Number two, there is the prohibition. And number three, there is the punishment. Let's look together. Verse one, the apostle says here, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This goes back to the entirety of chapter four. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. This is the key in what the Apostle Paul is saying to us here in this great fifth chapter as he begins, as we remember the fourth chapter of what the put-off, put-on relationship is. We've put off the old man and its practices, and we've put on the new man. And so he's giving us here really the highest the preeminent view, be imitators of God. That's how you live the Christian life. The Christian life is not a code. It is not a creed. It is obedient living to God and his son, Jesus Christ, according to his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he is telling us here, very first and foremost, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. That's where we must begin. Some of your translations might, might translate that Greek word, mimetas, for imitator. It means to mimic as followers of God. Just as young children mimic and pattern themselves after their moms and their dads, as we know our Lord, as we know our God through the pages of Scripture, we want to be a follower of him. We want to imitate him. We want to exemplify his life, to mimic who he is and all that he has done for us. So he says here, as beloved children, as beloved children, we are to mimic God as dear children of him, as dear children of him. I want you to follow me this morning. There are... A few key verses out of the Gospels I would like for you to see this morning. 
Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. Listen, all effective gospel preaching, all expositional preaching should produce a high view of God and people and cause people to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. If it's not doing that, it's falling woefully short. So our Lord ends this Matthew chapter 5, this first great chapter of the most profound sermon ever preached with verse 48. He says, therefore, you must be perfect as your Father, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's speaking in this passage of what it means to love your enemy, to do good to them that hate you, to pray for those that despitefully use you, to bless those that curse you. That's the supernatural response to a society gone astray. Love, pray, do good, bless. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. Theologians call it common grace. It's actually a better suited as a common benevolence. He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. It's the kindness of God. It's the mercy of God. And he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So he's calling for perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, he's not saying here, be sinless. What he's talking about here is the perfection of maturity of Christ-likeness. And he says, if you want to honor the Father, you must imitate him. He sends mercy on the just and the unjust, so we must respond to a culture that has gone astray with that kind of heaven benevolence. Not only in Matthew 5 here this morning, let's turn over please to Luke chapter 6 and verses 35 and 36. Luke chapter 6 verses 35 and 36. How are we at the cross church to respond to this generation? Here's how. Here is how. Similar words through the pen of Luke he says, but love your enemies. That does not mean condone evil action. And what it means is that you will give self-sacrificial love to those that are hurting you. Do good and lend. Expect nothing in return. Help your enemy? Yes. And he says, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Here's another characteristic of the people of God in imitating God. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Powerful words, mercy, mercy. Not just people of justice, but people of great mercy in the Lord. This even applies to the church. Will you go with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13? Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Here the Apostle Paul is saying, if you are the elect, if you are God's chosen ones, if you are the people of God, then he wants you to respond and live in a way 
that demonstrates who God is. Remember that, beloved, this morning. That our life, first and foremost, reflects on who God is. And Paul uses language that we've been studying in Ephesians here in Colossians as well. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's his people. He has set us apart to holiness even though we're strangers to it. He's loved us while we were sinners, but yet now he has welcomed us in the beloved. He says, put on compassionate hearts. That means merciful Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What does it mean to mimic God? What does it mean to be imitators of God? What does it mean to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? To be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving, bearing with one another, patient, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. This takes a supernatural response. This is the plea of Ephesians 5 verse 1. Now, in order to do this, we want to be honoring the Lord. We want to be honoring the Lord in all things. And as the apostle is calling us to that kind of honor, notice what he says here in verse 2. How do you, what's the key thing? What's the one thing that really demonstrates what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice this. Paul tells us, here's the plea. Walk in love. Walk in love. Peripateo, let it be the habit of your life. This isn't sentimentality. This isn't the sentimentality that I heard pundits use this last week. Well, if two men or two women want to be married in gay marriage, what's the big deal? If they love each other, why shouldn't they be granted that? What they are confusing with love, they simply call sentimentality. Biblical love is undeserved, unmerited, unreciprocated, self-sacrificial, and it's unfailing. Why? Because it has God in Jesus Christ on the cross reconciling a lost world to himself. That's the kind of love we're to walk in. This isn't calling for the sentiment of love. This is not calling to be in love but to walk in love, to make it the habit of our lives, to be self-sacrificial in that love with others. And he gives us the great example. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's love. That's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's love, self-sacrificial love for sinful people like me and you. That's true love. Love is not tolerance. Love is not sentimentality. Love is not feeling warm, affectionate tones for another. 
But walking in love is self-sacrificial living for the Christian. And the example is Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's the standard of Christian love. He says he gave himself up for us. As beloved children, we are to imitate God. How we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Go with me this morning here to Romans chapter 14 and verse 15. How do we show that love? Romans chapter 14 and verse 15. This may be an unusual verse to point you to, but I believe it's absolutely key and essential. How great is that love we are to have for one another? It even affects the food we have. Notice this in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What a verse. Here he's talking about the matters of conscience. Some are persuaded that nothing is unclean in of itself, and others are persuaded that anyone who thinks it's unclean is unclean. It's talking about conference, conscience, pardon me, and it's talking about preference issues. Take this out of food for a moment. Take it about the kind of lives that we live. It could be the style of dress or clothing. It could be the kind of music we listen to. We are not to be self-absorbed people. We are to walk in love and not destroy the one for whom Christ died was something that we say, hey, they need to get over it. That's my preference. No. Biblical love says we give up the rights to our preferences so that we honor one another within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's sacrificial love. There is great sacrificial love. Paul is saying don't destroy, don't hurt the one with food for whom Christ died. Go with me to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Here Jesus is in the upper room. He is ready to go to the cross, and he gives his disciples great instruction on biblical love, on biblical love. And he's speaking this to the 11. Judas had betrayed Christ. And in John 13, verses 34 and 35, listen to these profound words. He says, a new commandment I give to you. This is new. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Notice the object of true Christian love, of true biblical love, is love in the Lord Jesus Christ. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Again, this is echoing what Paul now is saying in, in Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. And he says, by this, by this, all people will know that you are my mathetas, learners, disciples, followers, if you have love for one another. That's it. 
This is the supreme way that we know that we are truly regenerated, that we love, as John says in 1 John 4, that we love the brethren. Not just the brethren in this church, but in any gospel-centered church. We love believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our joy. Why? Because we share the commonality of Jesus Christ purchasing us from this world. We're no longer our own. We belong to him. But look at the great testimony. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It's the greatest reflection that we have to a lost world that we genuinely, sacrificially love one another as Christ has loved us. Let's go to the great eighth chapter of Romans. Probably no greater chapter in all the New Testament on the love of God. You know this chapter, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Shall gay marriage separate us from the love of Christ, beloved? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him, here it is, who loved us. That's why neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're conquerors. We can live victorious lives in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he loved us. He loved us. Notice this. Back in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Verse 31, if God is for us, say it with me, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. God demonstrated his love for us, not when we were righteous, but yet when we were sinners. Now, as we go back to Ephesians 5, this is such a key phrase that follows this command to be imitators of God. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's our testimony. That's the truth. That's the witness that we have to a lost world. That's what binds our fellowship together as God's chosen people. But he says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Notice this phraseology, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is amazing language. He uses two words here, not only just an offering, but a fragrant offering, a sweet-smelling savor, a good odor, a pleasant aroma before God. As you know, in the old covenant, they would sprinkle with incense upon the altar, and it was a way to depict their worship and their prayers would be taken up in the beauty of that sweet aroma of worship and sacrifice before God. Christ now gave himself up for us upon the cross, upon that bloody Roman gibbet, 
upon that very dark day where that noon sun turned black as midnight because God's wrath was being poured out against his own son to take that standard for us, for all who would come to know him. He drank the cup of wrath. It was battle going on for our salvation. But in the midst of that, what some people would call tragedy, was Jesus Christ offering himself up as this sweet-smelling aroma, a sacrifice. What did it mean? It was pleasing to God. God was satisfied with Christ. And therefore, if you are in Christ, you have eternal life through him to God. Why? Because your life now is a sweet aroma to him, not because of your righteousness. Our righteousness is filthy rags, dirty, filthy rags, but yet we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ, and now you become an aroma of sweetness to a lost world in how we live before God. This is salvation. This is our work. He says, you have an offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, I want you to see this this morning, and I put this up for you on these slides. There's five offerings that were listed in the Old Testament. We're not going to spend much time on this, but I want you to see this here this morning. The first offering listed is the burnt offering. The burnt offering. This depicted Christ's total devotion to God in giving his very life to obey and please the Father. This is found in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The burnt offering. And by the way, the high priest, none of the priests could participate in the burnt offering. This was solely for God. It depicted Christ's coming on the cross as his total devotion to God and giving his very life to obey and please the Father. The second offering in the Old Covenant mentioned is the grain offering. It was sometimes referred to as the meal offering. This is depicted in Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 to, 16, 1 to 16, and it depicted Christ's absolute perfection. His absolute perfection. Number three, the peace offering. Oh, I love this. Depicted in Leviticus chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, Leviticus 4, 27 to 31, the peace offering. It was Christ making his peace between God and man as the one mediator between God and man. That's when we read in Scripture that he's a propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what it means. To propitiate God the Father, the Son not only quenched God's wrath against our sin, but he brought us into peace with God. He satisfied God so that we could be brought into peace with him. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, seeing that you've been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. This is what this offering is referring to. There's a war going on before you come to salvation, and it's between God and man. God is holy, inherent. That's in his nature. Man is sinful. Children of wrath by nature. And there's only one way that God will not violate his holiness and his justice in bringing sinful people like me and you to salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's where holiness and mercy and grace and justice kiss. It's where the great affection of eternity comes 
in the person of Jesus Christ as he is before the Father crying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he's quoting Psalm 22 as the once for all sufficient Messiah, the perfect man, the spotless lamb, the sinless high priest. And he's there bringing reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful world. He made peace. He made peace for us. Now listen, all of those offerings... The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, speak of what was pleasing to God. Each of the scriptures says it provided a soothing aroma to God. Here we are back to the language of Ephesians 5 2, a sacrificial aroma, an offering. It was an offering. By the way, those two words together means that no one took his life. This required a voluntary offering. No one trampled on our Lord. He was put to death by the hands of wicked men, but yet no one took his life. John 10, Jesus says that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. The good shepherd dies for the sheep. And he says, I have the ability to lay it down. I have the ability to take it up again. Our Lord at the cross was no victim. He is Savior. He is the victor. All those offerings speak of the soothing aroma to the Lord. But there are two other offerings. There are two other offerings. The other two offerings are the sin offering and the trespass offering. Leviticus 4, 1 to 26. Leviticus 4, 32 to 35. The sin offering and the trespass offering. Leviticus 5, 1 to 19. These were repulsive to God. The sin offerings, Scripture says. Though they depicted Christ, they depicted him as bearing the sin of us. The grain offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, a sweeter Roman to God. The sin offering, the trespass offering. Our sin The guilt and the penalty of it was placed on Jesus. Think of that. He is holy, but yet the putrefied, eternal, damnable rebellion of our sin-sick hearts, it was thrust on Christ. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sin, the trespass offering. Because he became our sin bearer, but yet it was through this offering that the aroma was pleasing to God. Genesis 8.21, I don't want to leave this quite yet. Genesis 8.21. This is after the flood. By the way, you know that the sign the Lord placed in the heavens that he would never, ever, as a covenant of Noah, a promise that he would never destroy the earth by a flood again was what? The rainbow. The rainbow. Listen, man will always take 
what is perfection before God, holy before God, and make it something cheap, sinful, irreverent, and unholy. The rainbow is the covenant-keeping promise of a holy God. So notice this. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, God's covenant, and he says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the attentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Noah had to provide a sacrifice. And it pleased the Lord. Listen, Jesus Christ is a once-for-all sacrifice. And it eternally pleased God. Let's go to the wonderful book of Hebrews this morning. I want you to see this in a couple of verses that are absolutely profound. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Again, why the need for a sacrifice? In fact, let's read verse 26 as well. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Here's who Jesus is. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. There's the offering. Notice, it was the one that is holy, innocent, unstained, separated, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted among the heavens who paid for our sin, paid for our salvation. In Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 14, the apostle is speaking here of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Again, as you notice in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things, here he is as high priest. By the way, the first time Jesus is mentioned as high priest in all the Bible is in Hebrews 2.17 as a high priest. He was a propitiation for the sins of the people before God. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit, here's the word, offered himself up without blemish to God, sinless, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Salvation, the dead works of religion, the dead works of creeds and liturgies, the dead works of offering prayers to Mary, the dead works of purgatory, the dead works of the treasury of merit, the dead works of human righteousness, 
the dead works of moral perfectionism, the dead works of a cultural civility. It's rubbish before a holy God. Jesus Christ alone offered himself up without blemish before God to purify us from dead works. Why? So that we could serve a living God. Amen? Hebrews chapter 10, just the next chapter over. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 to 12. And here the writer of Hebrews says it so well. He says, and by that we have been sanctified, means set apart unto godliness, through, here it is, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time, notice this, a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Notice verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And where there is forgiveness of sins, verse 18, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's a once for all offering, beloved. It's a one-time sacrifice. The perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is our great hope. Last but not least, and we'll have to close with this this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. The command, be an imitator of God. The plea, walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself for us as an offering and as a pleasant, sweet aroma of a sacrificial death that pleased God. God was satisfied. He was satisfied with Christ. Therefore, if you are in Christ, the war is over. You have peace with God forever. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll conclude with this. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You are a fragrance, a testimony, a living aroma of the sweetness of the love of God in Christ Jesus to the dying world that has nothing but the putrefaction of its own sinfulness to breathe in and out every day. But you are a sweet aroma, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity is commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in who? In Christ. In Christ. There it is, beloved. There it is. Imitators of God, the plea, walk in love. It's a command. Walk in love. As Christ loved us, there's how high the bar is set. And he's the offering, the sacrifice. 
He wasn't dragged away by wicked men against his own volition. No, he offered himself up as a sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to God. We needed to be saved. Who other than the Lord of glory would have offered himself up for sinful people like me and you so that we could have eternal life? What's the message to a nation that is experiencing places of racism? It's the gospel. Live gospel strong. What's the aroma to a nation that is bent on slaughtering thousands of unborn babies every day? It's the gospel. It's the aroma of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the hope for a White House celebrating that which is absolute sinfulness before God, but trumpeting it under the guise of grace-filled language. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the hope for a gay man, a lesbian woman, celebrating what they think is the law of the land and the law of God in bringing together that which should not be brought together in holy matrimony. How do you break through the relational, political, social confusion of the day? Beloved, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we live gospel strong. Listen, we are sinners in need of grace every day. We need to go to a lost world. And beloved, what's the, what's the answer for cheap grace? What's the answer for churches that think adultery is really no big deal and that no one has to repent or ask for forgiveness or pursue sanctification with a holy aggressiveness to perfecting holiness in the fear of God, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to present our bodies as living sacrifice, to have our minds renewed daily and sanctified by the truth of Scripture? What's the answer for a, a lost world but also a wayward church? It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we live gospel strong this week. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, you are the object and the love of our worship. You are the one that we come to this morning to give praise and glory and honor to your holy name. You are the one, Lord, that knows all of our needs even before we ask them. You are the one that's with our dear brother in Taiwan and his wife in the midst of a tremendous explosion there where people need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the one, Lord, that is sovereign even over the plans of kings and princes. You are the one that this is the hope for the nations. 
you are the one that's supreme, even over a supreme court gone awry. Words matter. Truth matters. The gospel matters. Jesus Christ matters. And it's the only hope for this world and for a wayward church. And so, Lord, may we go eclipse everything else from our view except the glorious vision of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, whether we go across the street or around the world, whether we're making a phone call or whether we're on Facebook or Twitter, whether we are sending a letter or an email, whether we are meeting someone face-to-face with coffee or whether we're praying quietly at midnight when no one else sees at home, Lord, do your will through your people. May we go and seek and save that which is lost, honoring, imitating our God who loved us so much that Jesus Christ came and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrificial aroma to God. And Lord, it's by that kind of love, with each other, for each other, to each other, that a lost world sees a visible church, one day triumphant, but now the church militant. That this is the testimony that true salvation has come to their hearts, come to their lives, new creations. We've put off the old man. We've put on the new, and this only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, revive us as a nation, as a people, as a church. Whatever time we have left before you come, may we be faithful to you. Be thou our vision. For it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.